Last week I talked about the fact that here's God's promise. And there's the fulfillment of the promise way out there. And we're here in, the, in between the promise given and the promise fulfilled. And that's where life takes place. The Christian life is going to take place in between the promise given and the promise fulfilled. And what is required of you is patience, faith, perseverance, and endurance. But we want the promises to be fulfilled. We want all of God's promises to be fulfilled. And so do Sarai and Abram. And so what they do is they devise a plan to use an Egyptian servant that they picked up while in Egypt, Hagar, to produce the promised offspring. And that leads to problems. It leads to Hagar's affliction. It leads to strife. And it leads to cruelty. And then the Lord sees that affliction and makes great promises. Now, again, I ask, don't you want a move? Do you want a move of God in your life? I want everything God has for me and my family, my church, and the world to come to fruition. And that is what we're told to pray. Your kingdom come and your will be done. So I, I want a demonstration of God's power. I want him to move in my life. And in this passage, we will see when God is pleased to move and when God is not pleased to move. When God's power is manifested and when his power is not manifested. Now, the Lord, again, you have to understand to, to grasp the tension in this passage is that the Lord promised Abram offspring. The very beginning of the Abrahamic narrative begins with the promise in Genesis 12. It's go from your country and your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will give you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. In the next chapter, we see it's his very own offspring that will be the heir. And in chapter 15, that is ratified. That Abram is going to have a son. And that son, through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This chapter starts out, though, that Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So imagine, imagine there's the promise given to Abram, but Sarai had borne him no children. And it's been 10 years at this point since the promise. I can't imagine that that would slightly weigh on Sarai. Because God promised these things. Abram is, is having these encounters with the Lord where he's coming down in darkness and making covenants and ratifying these promises, but Sarai still had not produced offspring. So I imagine this could weigh on Sarai. So here we have, then, 
a, an account of a human solution to what is viewed as God's inactivity by Sarai. Sarai says, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So Sarah believes that the Lord has prevented her from bearing children, which, side note, is directly contrary to what the promise was. In verse 2, she um, proposes a solution. And the solution is this. Go into my servant. That's a euphemism for go and have sexual relations with my servant that I may obtain children by her. So this shocks us at first that Sarai might suggest this, but this was a very common practice in the ancient Near East. And actually, it was actually built into wedding contracts in the ancient Near East, that if the wife cannot produce children for the husband, then the wife will take a surrogate mother and have children through her and be built up through her. So that's a very common practice. And one commentator says that this is a perfectly acceptable and respectable course of action in this society. So this was not shocking for the first readers of this passage or for Abram or Sarai. This is what the nations did. And that's why there's not exclamation points all over the place in the passage. This was a common practice. While surprising for us, it was not surprising for them. And so Sarah says, go into her, have children, maybe I'll have children through her. The text then says that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Abram is passive in this passage. He listens to the voice of Sarai. And I find it very interesting that in chapter 14, he's fighting armies with 314 men. In chapter 15, he has this great encounter with the Lord. You'd figure his faith is built up. But as soon as his wife, as soon as his wife presses him, he folds under pressure. I, this one commentator cracked me up. Derek Kidner says, It is ironic that after the heights attained in the last two chapters, Abram should capitulate to domestic pressure, compliant under his wife's complaining and scolding. <laughs> I want to say this, though. Wives, you have no idea what your opinion how, how significant that is for your husband. And your words, how significant that is for your husband. Um, the husband is called to lead. And here you see Abram being passive. But if the husband is a ship, uh, the wife is like a rudder that can affect the emotions and psyche of a man. So um, be very purposeful and how you encourage and rebuke your husband, knowing that it does, even though his, your husband may not um, seem to take that in, it does move him greatly. Um, you have great influence over your husband. So, Abram is very influenced here, and he's very passive, and he gives in to this dubious plan by Sarai. And so what does Sarai do? The text says that Sarai took Hagar, 
and gave her to Abram. She took Hagar and gave her to Abram. Hagar is the Egyptian servant that they picked up in chapter 12 when Abram had another dubious decision going down to Egypt, got many female servants and male servants, and so it is believed that Hagar was picked up then. Now, what's strange is, so Sarai says, go into my servant because God has not made good on his promise, it seems. But no moral evaluation is given in this passage. And you might find that odd at first because it's shocking to us and it's, it seems almost reprehensible to us. So how are we to think of this? I mean, the Bible is not evaluating Sarai's action. It's just telling you it. So on the surface, on the surface, the scripture does not give an evaluation. But by the way it describes what happens here, the scripture is actually telling you that this was something of a fall. This was a fall for Abram. Notice first, again, that God promised offspring just one chapter ago in chapter 15. Yet Sarai's decision and Abram's decision is based on the premise that God has prevented her from bearing children. That is in direct contradiction to the promise. It's ba their action is based on the idea that God has prevented her from bearing children. And that's a contradiction to what the Lord has said. Secondly, I want you to note the language that Scripture uses, because this is how Scripture speaks to you. Where else do you see a woman who takes something forbidden and gives it to her husband who is passive and acquiesces to that? Where else do you see a woman taking something, giving it to her husband, who passively acquiesces to that? That is Genesis 3, where Eve took the fruit and gave to her husband. And it is no mistake that the scripture uses the same exact wording in this passage in verse 3. Sarai, Abram's wife, took... Hagar, the Egyptian, a servant, and gave her to her husband as a wife. They are both accounts of a fall. One for Adam, one for Abram. Commentator says, By employing quite familiar formulations and identical sequence of events, the scripture makes it clear that both narratives describe comparable events. They are both accounts of a fall. So this is a fall by Abram. While he should have remained faithful to the promise as the Lord had given it to him, he passively acquiesces under his wife's pressure based on the premise that the Lord had prevented her from bearing children. What is the outcome of that decision then? Well, first of all, strife. Verse 4. And when he went into Hagar, Hagar conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the Lord, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, 
She looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. The text says that Sarai became dishonorable in Hagar's eyes. Or she grew small in Hagar's eyes. So the text doesn't exactly say what was going on, but that we know that there was some kind of pride and contempt for Sarai on the part of Hagar. And, she, and, and Sarai blames Abram for this. I mean, imagine the emotional toll that Sarai has gone through. First, she gives a wife to her husband to produce offspring that she feels God had not given to her, although she, he promised it to her. Then, offspring is produced, and Hagar is prideful and arrogant, it seems, to Sarai. And Sarai must be demoralized by this. But I gotta say, does it, did Abraham really think that this would turn out okay? Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll do that. I'll go into her. We'll, I'll have a kid, and it'll, it'll be good. The promise will be secure, and, and and it'll be fine. I don't think so. Don't do that, if your wife suggests it, at all. So that was probably not a good move, anyhow. Um, Furthermore, what comes from that is cruelty. So Abram, here's, here's Abram being a non-leader again, being passive again. Abram says, your servant's in your power. Do to her whatever you please. And Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar. Again, so Hagar is, is treated like a slave, less than human and is treated dishonorably by Abram, and then is treated harshly by Hagar. So you have human strife, which then is attempted to be resolved by human cruelty, based on a decision that was contrary to the Lord's promise. You see how this is unfolding here. So you have Sarai exploiting Hagar sexually to produce a child. Then after she does become pregnant, Sarai callously mistreats her and causes her to flee. How she mistreated her, we're not exactly sure what that is. Beatings, or I, I don't know, but it was bad enough to cause her to flee pregnant. So the first scene here ends in disaster. And that, what comes of Abram's decision is the evaluation of his decision. Not only does it reflect the very pattern of the fall in Genesis 3, but it's the same kind of outcome of strife and cruelty among men. God is not in this. God is not in this. Except he is in this seen here except he is not in this except when Sarai says what he hasn't done what he has not accomplished yet and so Sarai says since God didn't do it I'm going to go ahead and do it and what you see by that is that human methods and ingenuity are not God's means of bringing about his presence and power we've seen this again we've seen this before and we see it again yes this was a common custom of the nations. But God's people are not told to be like the nations. 
You are told to come out from the nations. Ecclesia, church in the Greek in the New Testament, means called out ones. Saint means set apart or holy ones. God's people are called to be distinct, unique, and different, and not act like the nations. And that was the point of the law. It was to make them distinct. Abram and Sarah should have not defaulted to the normal customs of men, but trusted God with exactitude. Trusted God with exaction. That's the kind of faith that God blesses. Not a faith, and we are prone to this, that waffles to and fro, doubts God's promises as time goes on, and wonders what we can do to fix the problem that God apparently has not himself fixed. I love the Apostle Paul in in Acts. There's um, a scene in Acts where he's on a ship, if you remember, and the ship seems like it's going to sink. And all the men dread for their lives. And uh, the Lord comes and tells him, don't fear, you must stand before Caesar. And Paul gets up and he says, take heart, men, on the boat. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as it has been told to me. That's the kind of faith God uses and blesses. It's a dogged, exact, firm faith in spite of the consequences or the situations in your life, whether you're on a boat that seems to be sinking or you're waiting for a promised child. Abram should have said, take heart, Sarai. I believe that it will happen exactly as it had been promised me. Now, since we have our meeting today, I'm thinking about the church And I'm thinking about the church, churches doing ministry apart from God's presence and power. Doing the work of ministry apart from the presence and power of God. I was listening to a preacher, a clip online the other day, of a preacher who made such a good point in this regard that I have to read this to you. And basically, the point is this, that churches today, we must not look to carnal means or the methods of men to do the work of God. Remember I said uh, in, our, in my invitation to membership sermon, I talked to you about the fact that God does extraordinary means, extraordinary things through the ordinary means of grace. That is the, the means that God has assigned to us to use. Preaching of the word, prayer, the communion of the saints. That's how you build up a church. So this preacher said this. He said, the church today has created a host of means and methods for doing ministry that requires little, if any help at all, from the Holy Spirit. We don't have to fast and pray for the church to grow 
We have marketing for that. It is dangerously possible for you and I to carry on the machinery of our churches, and it can be smooth and even successful, and we would never notice that the Holy Spirit is absent from it. The greatest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel in our day may be the people of God attempting to do the work of God apart from the power of the Spirit of God. God was not in this situation. There was no exact faith. There was no dogged endurance. There was no militant trusting and using what God had given. There was capitulation. There was no waiting on the Lord. There was rushing to the arm of men. That is when God's presence and power is not manifested. So you see, Abram was justified by faith in the last chapter. Abram believed God and he counted to him as righteousness. Now you see him having to progress by faith. And there are ups and downs in his life. He is a very complex person, like us all. But if you're justified by faith, he requires you to live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. So that is when the presence of power of God is not going to be active in your life or the church. Is when you run to the methods and means of men or to your best ideas rather than falling down and waiting on the Lord in desperation and prayer and dependence and through the means that he's given you. So that's when it's not active. When is the presence and power of God manifested then? Well, right after that scene, you see Hagar, pregnant, afflicted, and desperate. And then you see the Lord finding her. Verse 7, And the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Shur is in the direction of Egypt. So she's going back home. She's trying to get back home. She's trying to get away from Sarai and Abram. And the angel of the Lord is the... There, is, there are debates about who is the angel of the Lord. Is it a pre-incarnate Christ? Is it God coming down? Is it, it is, is it a theophany? Here's what we can definitely say. We can definitely say that the angel of the Lord is a manifestation of God's presence. And the angel of the Lord finds finds Sarai in the wilderness and he makes promises to her first, she, first he says where have you come from and where are you going Hagar said I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai and the Lord said to her and the angel of the Lord said to her return to your mistress and submit to her and the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her again, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord 
has listened to your affliction. Ishmael means God hears. God hears. Here you have a, an afflicted woman running, desperate, and the Lord finds her. This is when God is pleased to move, is at the point of your dependence on God. It's at the point of your dependence, de dependence on him. I, I love that story of Hezekiah when Sennacherib comes up to him and he says, we are going to destroy Jerusalem. We are going to come in there and we're going to rape your women, kill your children, and we're going to take the rest of you guys off to, to, to captivity. Horror, just threatening. And Hezekiah takes the letter that says all this and lays it before the Lord. He goes in desperate prayer and he lays it before the Lord. The letter itself. And the Lord eviscerated that army based on that dependent prayer. So you want the presence and power of God in your life? You need to be less self-sufficient and more dependent on the Lord. You need to not look to the arm of man or the calculations of men, but in desperation, you fall down on the Lord. And that's when he's pleased to move with power. Now, when you're, when what, ladies, when you are pregnant, when you're pregnant, didn't you say, I wonder what, what he or she's going to be like? And you, you wonder, is he going to be a fireman? Is, is he going to be a preacher or is a baseball player? What's that? Or she? Or is she going to be a uh, fireman? No. Is she, she going to be a, a, you know, a great woman of God? So you think about these things. What, what are my children going to be? Well, <laughs> the Lord tells her in verse 12, I get a kick out of this. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, and everyone's hand is going to be against him. No one's going to like this guy, basically. He's going to, and if you read that in the King James, it's even funnier. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man. Um, what is going on here? I thought this was supposed to be a comforting thing. I mean, the Lord meets her, and then he's saying, I'm going to give you a wild donkey of a man. Um, the base, the basics, the basis here is a donkey was someone that was untamable, and would not be held uh, a slave. And so uh, he's going to be free to roam. And the freedom that her mother sought is going to belong to her child, basically. So it's a promise of freedom. And while there's going to be there is going to be great tension between the offspring of Ishmael and the offspring of Abram that is going to come out. However, however, the promise here seems to be freedom for her offspring. So what does Hagar do? She commemorates this to the, this, this meeting and she says, um, you are a God of seeing. Truly I have seen him who looks after me. And therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. 
Bir Lohai Roy means well of the living one who sees me. So, here is when God's presence is manifested. It is when you are at the point of dependence. And if you have been too dependent on the Lord, or independent from the Lord, he may bring us to a point of desperation so that we can be dependent and call out to him. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So the Lord will see your affliction. He will find you in your affliction. You need only to depend on him and call out to him and trust him and not run to the arm of men like Sarai and Abram. What you need to do is make room for God to act in your life. Make room for him to act. I've mentioned before how I love George Mueller, how he had um, this great ministry of, um, what was it, Ned? It was um, the the orphanages, that's right. Orphanages. And he had children coming into the orphanages and he would never ever ask for money. He would not market or promote himself, but the Lord was faithful to his ministry and constantly gave him the funds he needed and more so because he gave the Lord room to work. He did not trust in the arm of men. That's what I love about uh, Heart Cry Missionary Society. They do the same exact thing. They make room for God to work. And the Lord has truly blessed them. Making room for God to work, the Bible calls that waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord means, first of all, not running to your own ingenuity. That's first of all. Or not running to man's help first. Waiting on the Lord involves patience, it involves prayer, and it involves trust. And the Lord sees. We have a promise here about the nature of God, that he is a God of seeing, and he is a God of hearing. He sees the afflicted, and he hears their cries. God's power is manifested at the point where people acknowledge that they desperately need him. And that is what Jesus was saying when he said, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are things that only God can supply. So if you hunger and thirst for what only God can supply, you're in a great place. You're in a great place to long for the thing that only divine power can give you through Jesus Christ. And that is, is that not the heart of the gospel too? or the the, the structure of the gospel, that you are in need. You're in great need. In fact, you're dead. And the first step is to reach out to him in faith and dependence and inadequacy. And that is the message of good news, that you deserve nothing. And you cannot gain anything. 
by yourself. You are utterly dependent, and it's at that point where you embrace that dependence and you reach out for the only one who can supply to you what you desire, that God will work. That's when he's pleased to move. So we are called, told to cast our burdens on the Lord because he cares for you. Don't go through life as if you did not have a God who is powerful and active. Don't go through life as if you did not have a God who is near to those who depend on him. Amen? Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I come before you right now and I ask for your people and for myself that you would do away with any self-sufficiency we have, Lord, any pride. And that you would teach us to be dependent people on you. Looking to you for drawing our breath, Lord. Asking for strength each day. Looking to the means of grace that you've assigned us in this church, Lord. And let this not just be a matter of me talking, Lord. I ask that it would grip my heart. And it would grip the hearts of your people here right now. I ask that this would not just be a pious principle that I'm speaking right now, but something I live out, something your people live out. And we would truly run to the arm of the Lord first before the arm of men. We commit this day to you, the meeting coming up to you. We give you praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only wise God be glory and majesty and power and dominion now before all time and forevermore. Amen and amen. I'm going to ask the members to hustle down here as soon as you can. I want to talk with you just for a minute and then we'll tear up and we'll run over to the Alvarenga's house. Did I say tear up and then tear down? I go.